0: in and to trust in concerning you and your word. We thank you for the confidence that is ours as your children. As Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but his word will never pass away. And Lord, we thank you that we have uh, come to know you and be able to build our lives, our the things of our heart, the things of our mind, our whole lives upon something As sure as you and your word. As we turn to it now, we ask that you would use it to equip us and to nourish us and to strengthen us and also to sanctify us tonight, most especially as we look at this uh, prophecy of Jeremiah. We thank you tonight for your love for us, Lord. We are um, deeply humbled by it. And we want you to know, not only in song, but in our prayer as well, that we love you. And we thank you that we love you because you first loved us. We thank you for Jesus tonight. We sang about the cross and uh, the unimaginable uh, physical and emotional um, torment and and, uh, agony that he went through and then to realize that he was willing to do that as the Son of God on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for your love. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice tonight. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the life that you have led us into through this spiritual birth and beyond. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Jeremiah chapter 9, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick things up in chapter 9, verse 7. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost without a Bible. Just raise your hand and one of the gentlemen coming up the aisles right now will put a Bible into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that a Bible, a, a, Bible, a gift from the Lord uh, to you tonight. We remember that Jeremiah is... Uh, prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. He does so for a period of at least 40 years, some estimate as long as 50 years to them, uh, calling them to repent of their wickedness, to repent of their idolatry, uh, to turn back to God so that God would not have to uh, judge them uh, for these things. Um, God sends Jeremiah to prophesy to them Knowing full well that in the course of those 40 years, they will never listen to him. They will never turn. There will not be a revival. There will not be any significant change in the hearts of the nation as a whole, really, in those 40 years. And that ultimately they would go into captivity uh, to the Babylonians. And here we find ourselves from chapters 7 through 10 in what are known as the Temple Message or the Temple Messages that Jeremiah is delivering, not in uh, various different areas of uh, Jerusalem and Judah, as he will, in so many of the prophecies that he will give, but these are specifically messages that he's delivering to the people at the very gate of the temple as they're entering into to worship uh, God at the temple, even though the idolatry, the wickedness, the disobedience is absolutely uh, operating wholesale within the nation. They did not turn away from uh, church attendance, so to speak, or attending uh, the temple. They kept all of that going, but there was no heart reality associated with it. It was just the kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that people ought to do. It's a part of our heritage, and so we'll continue to do it. And so God spoke to Jeremiah and said, I want you to go right there where they are performing the ultimate act of hypocrisy against me in living the kind of lives that they live throughout the week and then come and worship me, this place of intimacy that I've given to them in terms of the worship of me and a personal relationship, the temple which represented the very presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And he said, I want you to confront them in their hypocrisy in that place. In delivering these messages at the temple, it accomplished two things. Number one, it accomplished the fact that there would be a very significant audience there to listen to uh, the prophecy. And number two is it guaranteed that the right people would be hearing uh, the prophecy. There is a deception Uh, that is probably the most dangerous deception that any person can fall under, and that is a spiritual deception. And the children of Judah had fallen under it, and we're as as prone to it as ever they were, uh, even us as Christians today. And this idea that we are spiritual on the basis of what we know or solely on the basis of the fact that we are a Christian as opposed to understanding that we are spiritual uh, solely, Uh, our maturity and spiritual maturity is based solely upon uh, not what we know spiritually, what we know from the Bible, but how much of the Bible we are actually obeying. And not even supremely in church or at the temple, but how much of it we obey in the course Of the week. As the old saying goes, each of us are uh, truly what we are, is what we are when we are alone and alone uh, before God. And so they are self deceived, they think they are completely fine, and God says, I'm going to send you right to. Again, where uh, the most astonishing hypocrisy of all is taking place in their life, uh, what they're doing, and the life that they're living, and then, uh, and then feigning to worship me with all of their heart at the temple uh, on, uh, on the Sabbath. And so this is what he's uh, in the middle of. This is what he's declaring, the judgment upon them. We pick it up in verse 7. And therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceits. In other words, lies uh, permeated now the culture. He's kind of picking up where we left off uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Corruption that was occurring within Israel, it occurred Uh, politically. It occurred within the ruling class, and by that I mean the spiritual leaders, the priests and the prophets within uh, Judah. Uh, They began to allow sin to come in, compromise to come in, idolatry to come in, and so forth. And then as it came into the nation kind of uh, and influenced those who were like governing on a national level, it wasn't long before these same characteristics then uh, filtered down and began to mark uh, the individual people as well. And so their speech and so forth, it was marked uh, by and large by deceit and and by lies. Here is a, a mouth that we've been given as Christians that's been set aside um, to minister healing, to minister grace to people's lives, and so forth. It is a complete misuse of the gift of speech. One speaks peaceably, Jeremiah said, to his neighbor with his mouth, says a bunch of nice things and good things, but in his heart he lies in wait to destroy him." or to harm him, or to steal uh, from him. Again, the hypocrisy uh, on, uh, you know, the upper level, and pretty soon it's now made its way down into the population as a whole, widespread again. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul spoke uh, to the church at Corinth, and, and it certainly does. Sin is either repented of or it continues to enlarge itself and infect uh, a, a greater part of our individual lives or a greater uh, number of uh, uh, of people that makes up uh, the group uh, that we're a part of in uh, in the Lord, uh, shall I not punish them for these things? Says the Lord, shall I not avenge myself on a nation uh, as this? I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places uh, of the wilderness, a lamentation because they are burned up so that no one uh, can pass through. And so God laments and um, over the fact that the judgment that he is going to uh, pour out upon Judah was uh, of necessity not only affect them but affect the very uh, land, even the beasts that were in the land. Nor can men hear uh, the voice of the cattle. There will be no more cattle in the land that will belong to the Jews. The Babylonians will uh, loot everything. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone. As Babylon comes in and lays its siege, all of the The animals would have enough sense to get uh, out of the way. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins and a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate and without inhabitant. And so uh, here is Jerusalem. It is bustling. It is there's money. There is jobs. There is uh, all kinds of things going on. To the naked eye, to look and say that this place is going to become a desolation. That nobody virtually is. to live here, except jackals, which is kind of a of a symbol that it's it 's completely desolate and overrun by animals. It would have seemed astonishing to people that that could happen to Jer- to Jerusalem, and yet that judgment was right around the corner. I think about You know, when I uh, read the book of Jeremiah and I look at it, and of course Judah was so many years ago, and and of course the applications are uh, significant applications for us as well. But I look at the world that I live in and that you live in, and uh, to speak to the world today of a judgment that is coming to this world for the idolatry, for the wickedness, for the disregard of God, for the uh, persecution of His people, the attempt to stamp out uh, God and His Word. Imagine His creation the form of human beings as we have a significant block of our population in the United States that not only wants to reject God for themselves, but they want to remove Him for everyone else, remove His voice completely. Imagine how this is viewed from heaven. The <laughs> cat how the, the arrogance of man, the pride of man, and yet, you know, the, the person can look at that and, of course, not believing in God at all, that's quite a self-deception as well. But then looking at it and looking at New York City or San Francisco or all of the wealth and the might and, and so forth of California or wherever you want to look around the United States and say, there's no way this could be end. There's no way that this could become a den of jackals, that this could end up being a heap and a ruin. And yet, in fact, the Lord has declared that one day He is going to return. There's going to be a trump. There's going to be a shout. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we will be uh, raised following them to meet the Lord in the air at the rapture of the church, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, and then a judgment to come out upon the entire world but to look at how blind uh, Judah was to the coming judgment. And yet the blindness of man wasn't going to have any impact upon uh, deterring that or that it wasn't going to happen. And the same thing is true today. People look and say, this will never happen. Look at this great Babylon, this great world that I have built. And, uh, you know, what can even God do to it? And yet God can, in an instance, or in this case, in the course of seven years, Turn all of it into a desolation and virtually without an inhabitant. And who, he goes on, is the wise man, verse 12, who may understand uh, this. And so uh, the reasons for the judgment here are now restated by God through Jeremiah. And who is he um, who uh, and who is, is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, because, and that word because, that's a reason word. So God is once again, I mean, how many times? We're just in chapter 9. Some of you are painfully aware of that. But how many times he tells them this is the reason why this judgment is coming upon uh, the land, uh, because he wants to make it unmistakably clear to them. And then it's recorded in the Bible so that it's unmistakably clear to us. Here's the reason. Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and they have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. The importance of obedience to God's word. And again, you know, I have to uh, be careful. I don't think that I'm, uh, uh, you know, I think we're all the same. No temptation has overtaken us except it's common to man. And I've walked with the Lord since 1980 and I feel the same pressure that everybody else feels over kind of the long haul of walking with the Lord of maybe looking and saying I've kind of paid my dues here or there and this is the Christian life that I'm satisfied with I'm not interested in you know anything uh, further than this or the trials or the difficulties that might accompany it and and, and so forth and to uh, just look and fashion the Christianity that I want to live Uh, and, And is comfortable for me and the big I, me, and my that's inside of me as much as anyone else, rather than the Christianity that's described in the Word of God. Obedience is a big, big deal. And that's why God keeps talking about it over and over and over again. One of the problems that we face is that Uh, within, for instance, the United States of America because we're so uh, hell-bent literally in pursuing sin within our culture, legalizing it, uh, removing any shame or stigma attached to it, uh, allowing access to all of it because there's such a work to protect that kind of thing Um, of necessity, if you're going to move in that direction, you cannot report the casualties that are occurring within the nation as a result of sin. So you don't talk about the unwanted pregnancies. You don't talk about the drug addiction. You don't talk about how many people die in the inner city and other places, how many people are being shot by their own loved ones in their own homes. You don't talk about the drug addiction. You don't talk about the alcoholism. You don't talk about the tremendous price that people are paying and the world is paying for the simple reason that we're trying to find life or we're trying to find uh, even existence or hope in some place other than obedience to God. So all of that stuff is kept away from us. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard, and it is very hard. But it is not only underreported, it is virtually unreported within our culture. But God sees all of it on a daily basis. And so he drives home this point the importance. This is not a game. God is not a joke. His word is not a joke. His commandments are not options, they're not a joke. It is life and death important, both spiritually and physically, emotionally, mentally, life and death important to obey God's word. But he said in verse 14, instead they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the laws which their fathers uh, taught them. And therefore, uh, so you've got this because in verse 13, this but in verse 14, uh, therefore in verse 15, here's the result of all of this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. Both of these were uh, bitter drinks. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. The worst thing about sin is not that there's a sowing and reaping process to it, not to the fact that uh, God gives us his commandments and he never gives us a, com- uh, us a commandment. He never denies us anything through his commandments it, that causes us to be denied something that is good for our lives. Every single one of his commandments is motivated by uh, love for us. So there's a sowing and reaping process. There is a creation. We've been made a certain way. Creation's been made a certain way. To obey God's Word is to go in the flow of all of creation. It is to go in the flow of the way that God has made things, and it results in, uh, by and large, as much as it can in a fallen world, generally speaking, physical health and uh, mental health and emotional health and certainly uh, spiritual health. But to go against those commandments is to go against all of creation, all of the way that God has made us to live and how He knows uh, what we need in order to uh, to survive and to thrive and so forth. And so there is with sin always the natural, okay, if I violate this commandment, then the physical consequence is this and it's on our doorstep immediately. But the stakes are even higher than that. The stakes are that disobedience then puts me not up only up against Uh, on the wrong side of a sowing and reaping process, but it puts me on the wrong side of God. And there is a God. Somebody I was reading, uh, listening somewhere in the last few weeks, uh, I guess somebody wrote a book uh, essentially talking about among Christians what is a practical atheism where there is this intellectual assent to God and a belief and so forth in this. But in terms of living our lives practically uh, speaking, it's it's an atheism. It's as if he doesn't exist, as if he doesn't watch, as if he doesn't stand behind his word either to bless or to curse. And so here they've lost sight uh, of all of it. They look at the sowing and reaping, and they figure, all right, I steal over here, I lie a little bit over here, a little sexual immorality over here, and yet I'm clever enough to juggle it and, you know, keep the assets a little bit greater than the liability and all, and forgetting, though, that the problem is greater than that. God is watching it, and ultimately uh, He must judge, and so He did. And then uh, the, God begins to speak to them of the massive loss of life that is going to occur uh, as a result of their judgment. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. Uh, most of you are probably aware of the fact that in the ancient world, you could ha- uh, hire wailing women Uh, for your funeral, for instance. So maybe you've even watched Lawrence of Arabia or you've watched some other thing on the news where you see people in the Middle East, uh, certain people groups are wailing and it's, you know, that whole thing going on, the whole group of women and everything. It'd be like, you know, I don't know about you. It doesn't comfort me at all, but it'd be like, man, one thing it does is it makes me forget that somebody died. That's an awful sound. But uh, for them somehow, it, it, it works. And so what they would do is, if you ha- were a prominent person and you died or somebody of significance uh, died and, and you felt uh, in terms of the size of your family or the size of your village that this, wa- this person was so beloved... That just our wailing and our lamenting won't be enough to express the depth of sorrow that we're experiencing at the loss of this person. You would then hire these uh, women to come in and to add their voice um, to all of this. Interestingly, interesting to be reminded, I think, in the in the New Testament, that uh, when Herod, King Herod, that awful, awful human being, uh, when he died, he knew that no one would lament his death, and so. Uh, he ordered that uh, you know all. He ordered the death of all of these priests and prophets and so forth uh, within Jerusalem. I think it was them. He ordered the death of a particular people group uh, in Jerusalem, so that they would then mourn the loss of their loved ones, and it would sound like a mourning for Herod. But this was kind of the context of things that was going on. God is saying, uh, "You hire all of these people you can, because an unbelievable." Uh, judgment and loss is coming your way. Let them make haste, verse 18, and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may, uh, eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. Now that's real sorrow, isn't it? Uh, they're going to regret uh, the their sin and the judgment that it's brought. For a voice of wailing is heard uh, from Zion and uh, speaking of uh, of Jerusalem. And this is what they're going to uh, cry concerning, how we are plundered, we are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken uh, the land because we have been cast out of our dwellings. And so they'll lament being plundered, they'll lament their shame, uh, all that they've lost as a result of their sin. And it's interesting, verse 19 is the cry really of any backslider. Uh, when they ultimately come when we come to our senses of in and, and, and all of that, there is the realization that my sin has plundered me it's it is um made me greatly ashamed. The loss of what I've, I've lost in my backsliding is awful. And so the same thing would be true of Judah. Oh, hear the word of the Lord, O oh women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters whaling. In other words, there's not going to be enough professional whalers. Get them into the whaling discipleship school and um, you know, before the judgment comes, it might have been somewhere between 20 and 30 years away as Jeremiah is prophesying, and he's saying, listen, there's a future in being a wailer in this country, uh, and so uh, give your, uh, teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a lamentation for, that's a reason where death has come through our window. Speaking of the Babylonian conquest of Judah, he has entered our palaces to kill off the children, no longer to be out. And the young men no longer on the streets. Speak thus, says uh, the Lord uh, the, uh, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on. Uh, the open field like the cuttings of the harvester and no one shall gather them." Very graphic language, very poetic language and uh, you know in those days they didn't have uh, mechanized equipment and so forth so the man uh, it, when the harvest for the grain would come they would take the scythe out and they'd, and they uh, hit the grain and it would hit it to the base by the ground and then it would just fall in all directions and God is saying that's the way the bodies are going to be heaped up in Jerusalem Uh, as a result of the judgment uh, that is going to uh, occur here. And then the Lord uh, uh, declared, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but instead let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me And what does he understand and know about God? That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness. This speaks about grace, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. And God is speaking to Judah that there is no security in a person's wisdom. Uh, The only place of security in the entire world is to be in an obedient personal relationship with God. You can still die there. You can still be stoned to death there. You can still die a martyr's death in that place, but we have the confidence that we know that we have died uh, in uh, the, the will of God. The only place of security is there. There is no security in man's wisdom. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, we are not smarter than God, and I think this idea is epidemic in our country and on an individual level. You think, just think again, as we return to what we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, why would you uh, jettison God from a culture except you think that you're smarter than God? And there's a big wake-up call that comes uh, at the end of that kind of pride. We're not too a glory in our might. We are not more powerful uh, than God. One day, uh, in one ga- day, God can bring the strength of a nation down to nothing. And in one day, our physical strength as an individual human being uh, can be lost and it can be gone. Riches, of course, as he mentions them here, uh, they can be gone in an instant as well. And it's a very, very good word to us uh, even today uh, because this is the tendency, not just thousands of years ago. This is where people tend to put uh, our security in, in our wisdom, our smarts, our might, our power, our position, our riches, and so forth. But there's no security in it at all. The security is in knowing God and knowing that God, that He is the Lord, exercising loving kindness, that He is gracious uh, judgment, that he is a just God and, and being uh, just uh, and, and judgmental towards sin in our own lives and around us. And then in judgmental in a sanctified sense, by the way, and and uh, And righteousness uh, in the earth that he exercises these things doing uh, doing right here, and the point he 's making here is the importance of in terms of security is to know God, to love God, and then to for that to be expressed then, and also Um, exercising uh, loving kindness in this world, judgment where it's necessary to look and say, that's wrong, I'm not going to have any part of it, or that's wrong, and I'm going to say that's wrong. And then also uh, righteousness, making righteous choices in our lives. "'For in these I delight,' uh, says the Lord." And behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. And the Jews just felt that, all right, Babylon's coming in, Babylon's eaten up most of the Uh, the Middle Eastern world at this particular point. Uh, They are the world ruling empire at this time in human history. And so the Jews looked and said, well, they'll probably come here toward the Mediterranean and so forth, and they'll gobble up all of the Gentile nations that surround us, dirty pagans that they are, and and idolaters, even though we've borrowed all of their idolatry. But God will not let that happen to us because we're Jews. We are the children of Israel. We are circumcised. This represents our uh, covenant relationship uh, with God. But as Paul brings out in the New Testament, and God brings out continually in the Old Testament, the outward right, physical right of circumcision, and circumcision was simply the removal of the flesh, uh, and it was to represent a, a heart in a human being, in a man, and uh, but the the Jews as a whole, that their heart uh, it was not dominated by the flesh as it was uh, in the Gentile world, but their heart was dominated by God and a love for God. But to I- engage in the physical rite of circumcision and then to have a completely uncircumcised heart, again, that's a self-deception. And, but that's where they were, the outward rite of, of circumcision. We're the Jews. We know God. We've got the Old Testament and the prophets. God isn't going to judge us. And God said, I will punish uh, all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised Egypt and Judah, Edom, and the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, uh, to be sure. Uh, They didn't have a covenant relationship with God. But God then goes on and says, All of the house of Israel, though physically circumcised, are uncircumcised. Uh, in heart, so chapter Ten, uh, the uh, God continues now uh, Jeremiah does again his uh, temple uh, message, and uh, he uh, talks about uh, he identifies idolatry, and it's kind of a scathing uh, look at the folly of idolatry. Idolatry is essentially the worship of any created thing. So they worshiped images of all of these different kinds of things, Baal and Ashtoreth and all these kind of things in, in their, in their uh, version and in their day and so forth. But, it, it, you know, and, and we as Americans, we're too sophisticated to have something like that on our mantle. We just worship our cars. And uh, our homes and relationships and wealth and the American dream and so forth. And so, but so idolatry is to worship anything in life more than uh, and love it and worship it more than I love and worship God. And so it has an application uh, today to us. Hear the word which the Lord sp- uh, speaks to you, o house of Israel. Thus says uh, the Lord. Do not learn the ways, uh, the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, uh, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. And so God here, um, uh, you, you know, speaks um, reproachfully of the worship of the heavens, of astrology, of looking to the heavens for wisdom and for direction. And so no Christian should ever be involved in that. Why in the world Uh, the the alignment of the planets and so forth have no uh, control over our lives. God has control over our lives. They can't provide wisdom to us. God provides wisdom. Imagine, you know, uh, getting rid of God and His Word and the Holy Spirit and prayer and all of these things to worship the stars. It was just, you know, Inconceivable to God from the vantage point of heaven, and yet they had uh, done it. For the customs of the people, he says, as now he begins to condemn in earnest their uh, idolatry—the images and so forth that they were creating to represent these gods and to worship uh, them. For the customs of the people are futile; idolatry is futile. For one speaking of a man, he cuts a tree from the forest. You following him? All right, all right. So just picture Christmas time. All right. some of us we could go get that tree somewhere. Well, now we all go to Target or wherever. But um, for one cuts a tree in the forest and then makes that tree uh, the work of his hands, the work of the hands of an axman, of a, of the workman with an axe. And so he carves that wood into some kind of an image. And then Uh, you know, because that isn't enough really to do. So their god or their idol deserves more than that. So they then decorate it with silver and gold. In other words, uh, this becomes the means of ascribing value to their idol. We'll we'll put some silver and some uh, gold upon it, and then uh, they uh, fasten it with uh, nails and hammers so that it doesn 't topple and So here you have idolatry where man is uh, is encumbered with the responsibility of giving this thing value, and then man is encumbered with the responsibility of now supporting this God, this idol that he has created uh, to you know uh, to hammer its feet with some nails into the floor of the house so it doesn't fall over uh, in an earthquake. They are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. And so here you have idolatry, which uh, and the idols uh, require us to give them value. They require uh, us to support them. They require us in order to carry them. I don't need a God that I can carry. I need a God, 24-7 by the way, who can carry me. Why would I throw away the true and living God of the Bible uh, for idolatry now that just becomes, these idols become one more responsibility uh, within my life. And God is trying to break through to these people on on the folly of us as well. He said, do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. They're powerless. They're nothings. And uh, and so this kind of scathing expose of the idolatry. And then he continues it declaring, inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord. And so now he contrasts the worship of the God of the Bible, the true and the living God, our Heavenly Father, to the worship of these idols. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, and there is no one like our God, who are great, and your name is great in might. There is power in the name of God. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations, for this is your rightful "'Do, for among all of the wise men of the nations "'and in all their kingdoms there is none like you, "'but they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish.'" A wooden idol, I mean to exchange God for a wooden idol, is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten then into silver plates and applied to the idol. The silver is the best silver in the world. It's brought from Tarshish. They do the same with the, the gold, and they bring it from the best gold in the world, from uh, Aphaz. And the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the metalsmith working to apply it to the idol. Blue and purple clothing are then added to it. They are all the work of skillful men. And then, but, and that word but is so great. And but means forget everything that's happened before. When somebody talks with you and and they're going on and on and on, they're saying, okay, and this and this and this and this and that. And you're going, okay, okay, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm." And then they go, but. And then now you've got their attention because now you're going to get down to the bottom line. And but means, forget everything else that I've said. Here's what is really is important. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, not a stupid idol on a mantle. Excuse me, I just got a little fired up for a moment. And uh, He is the living God. How many of us know that He is a living God in our lives, uh, both to carry us and to spank us? Unfortunately, I'm a little more familiar with the spanking side of things. But uh, we know Him to be living nonetheless that he is the living God and the everlasting King. And at his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the kings will not be able to endure uh, his indignation. And so the Lord then, uh, in verse 11, pronounced his judgment upon uh, their gods. And thus you shall say to them, 'The uh, "'The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens.'" So idolatry is, again, the worship of any created thing. If you, as he's describing here, all of these workmen, and they're putting all of this gold and expensive fabric together and all to create an idol. But by virtue of the fact that we can create the idol, the creation is always less than the creator. Anything that we create, whether a philosophy or a thought or an actual idol, whatever it might be, um, it is less than us because we formulated the idol. We thought it up and we created it. And and here's the illogic of idolatry. Why would I worship something that is less than me? It's a complete waste of time. It's a folly. And so this is what he's talking about. The only God that any of us should ever worship is the God who has created the heavens and the earth, and there's only one God that has done that, and that's the God of the Bible. This is the great mistake that people make when they say, well, I don't really worship, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. How much of that do you hear today? Well, I'm a, I don't know about God and all, but I'm a very spiritual person. All right, give me your wrap. I'm not putting it. I mean, I'm putting it down. But so it's all over the place. And this idea that I worship the rose, and I worship creation, and I I worship the forest, and I worship the ocean, and and from the vantage point of God, and really the vantage point of logic, is that it's completely illogical. It's one step short of the logical progression, and that is why would I worship the creation, even the creation of God, when the God who has created the creation is of necessity greater than the creation. He is the one that I want to worship. That's why the worship of creation, again, to stop and look at it for even a moment doesn't make any sense. Uh, But, you know, in terms of what people worship and what they believe and so forth, there's a whole demonic realm that's involved in all of that, a tremendous deception, Uh, that's involved. And so the worship, our worship should be reserved for the God who has created the heavens and the earth. He has made the earth, speaking of this God, our God, He has made the earth by His power, and He has established the world by His wisdom. This is Jeremiah saying God has created the heavens and the earth. And then In the second portion of uh, verse 12, that speaks of God as creator, and then he goes on to speak of God as designer in the latter part of verse 12, and he has stressed out the heavens at his discretion. And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about on a regular basis through the years, you've heard most of you have been around for a while, you know that every once in a while... Uh, sometimes around Easter or whatever it might be, or however the Lord might just touch my heart to to re-approach it again, to, you know, the, to argue the existence of God uh, from the vantage point of creation and design. Again, uh, there, behind all creation in the world, there is a creator, and the creator is always greater than his or her creation. Uh, behind all design in the world, again, whether it's a skyscraper, a bridge, a jet, you there is a designer, and the designer is always greater than his or her uh, design. And it's called the argument from design or the argument from creation. And every Christian ought to be able to make that argument related to God and the existence of God uh, related to that. Sometimes you get in a discussion uh, uh, concerning that And people will sometimes just dismiss it. Oh, you're just arguing uh, uh, that's the design creation argument that you're making. And then I always stop and tell them, no, I'm not making a design creation argument to you. I'm talking about what the Bible has to say. And poke the hole in it that it, uh, that you can see to put in it. And it's interesting that no matter what a person might come back to related to all of that, is continually through the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God speaks of his existence by virtue of his creation and his design, and we are always on safe ground when we do the same. Whether we feel like we leave the discussion with the person uh, having scored some points or made an impact or what, it doesn't matter. It's the truth, and then it's up to the Holy Spirit to give it some kind of an impact in, person's, in a person's life. And so this is what God is doing through Jeremiah here. When he utters his voice, 13, uh, verse 13 there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend uh, from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings the wind out of his treasuries. Well, enough already, Lord, on that wind, right? If you're a farmer and your orchard's half toppled over now, really. By the way, if you're still praying for rain, um, <laughs> can I just talk to you for a moment on um, Not that you would cease doing it, but I've got some personal prayer needs. You're so effective. Uh, I've got some personal prayer needs that I'd like to give to you to uh, lift up uh, to the Lord. What a great year it's been in terms of rain and snow, uh, isn't it? And so again, God is speaking here uh, through verse 13 of of his creation and of his design. And uh, again, he returns to the subject of the folly of uh, idolatry and uh, uh, and uh, the majesty of God in contrast, and, and he restates it. Everyone is dull-hearted and without knowledge, talking about the idolater. Every metal, metalsmith is put to shame by an image, uh, and here's why uh, he'll be put to shame by it. For, again, a reason word, his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They, they have no life themselves. How can they impart life? Uh, they are futile. They're empty. A work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. In other words, at the time of judgment, they won't even be able to protect themselves, let alone to protect uh, their uh, worshipers. And then in contrast to all of that, verse 16, wonderfully, the portion of Jacob, and that's uh, the name that God gives himself here, the portion of Jacob is not uh, like them, for he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Aren't you glad that the Lord God is your God tonight, and he's delivered us from our idolatry. And there's no worse idolatry in all of the world than the worship of self, which is also uh, you know, epidemic and nurtured in the culture that we, uh, we live in. It is the, to worship a created thing and a very, very frail created thing gather up your wares uh, from the land o inhabitant of the fortress speaking of Jerusalem he calls upon uh, and again the city of Jerusalem is bustling it's going the stock market is crazy everything is looks like it's going to uh, continue to be great and so forth and jeremiah speaks to them and says grab up whatever belongings you can carry to babylon because that's where you're going into captivity seemed as if it was just inconceivable that it would would ever happen and yet it was coming for thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land. I don't like that. I don't ever want God to say, Listen, I'm going to throw out. This is something you do with uh, trash and so forth, something that's valueless. Uh, um, the, the Lord was going to bring them back in the land. I'm not saying that they were valueless to him. This represented his chastening uh, in their life. Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitant of the land, and will distress them that they may find it so. Jeremiah is delivering these prophecies. Imagine delivering these prophecies um, to people. He's all alone. He's one person in a whole country, and he's saying this stuff to people that are like stone. Uh, There's no positive reaction for 40 years to his message. Not one recorded convert. You know, I'm discouraging. That would be... And yet here he is, he's declaring all of this from God. He knows in his heart, he's got a relationship with God. He knows it's the Spirit of God speaking. He knows that all of this is going to come to Judah. And so while the message is having no impact upon the nation as a whole, of course it has to impact him. It's the same thing as when uh, you and I, uh, in our lives, if we have uh, family members who are backslidden tonight, and you look at them in the backslidden state that they 're in, and you see all of the judgment you see all of the consequences of their sin that they 're already uh, dealing with it or are, are mounting up in a greater measure, and you know even more hardship is going to come, and yet for them, they don't care one bit. It doesn't have any impact upon them. Our words to them, and yet it impacts us most of all. And so Jeremiah, he wasn't a robot here. He's, he's speaking this, and it has an impact upon him. And he says, "'Woe is me from my hurt. This is, hurts me to know what is, is coming. My wound is severe.'" Uh, But I say, truly, this is an infirmity, and I must bear it. And so the difficulty uh, that Jeremiah uh, had here in absorbing all of this, I think about um, uh, this in terms of us as Christians, and it's one of the things about the fact that uh, you remember when Jesus healed the man uh, of his blindness. And... um, and the religious leaders began to investigate uh, the cause of the healing and so forth. And they found out that it was Jesus who had done it. And they brought the parents of the, the man who had been healed of his blindness. And they asked him who did this. They didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. And they said, so we do, you go ask him. And they brought him and they began to interrogate him and so forth. And he says to them, listen, all I know is once I was blind and now I see. I don't care what you say about this man. I don't care what your opinions are of this man. All I know is he's completely changed my life in a way that you had decades to do so and were powerless to do so. And one of the things about being a Christian, and it is a curse and it is a blessing, it is to have opened eyes it is to see things coming upon this world that even the world doesn't care about or want to know and makes Im- no impact upon them, but it impacts us. And it ought to. It ought to. It breaks our heart to uh, see the world in, in a condition that is uh, uh, moving in a direction that is virtually forcing God Uh, to one day judge it in the way that he will. Jeremiah says, "'My tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore to set up my curtains.' Uh, And he's saying here that he's become isolated from and shunned by all of the other people within the land. He can't even hire a servant boy or girl to set up his tent or to take something down on the patio or so forth. He's got to do everything on his own. Nobody wants anything to do with the crazy prophet there in in, uh, Jerusalem. And then Jeremiah continues, for the shepherds have become uh, dull-hearted, speaking of the leaders of Judah, and they have not sought the Lord, and therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Let me make a, a... an observation here. For the shepherds, here they are. These are the leaders of the land. They've become dull-hearted spiritually, and they have not uh, sought the Lord. They were in a position of authority, in a position of responsibility. They allowed themselves to become dull-hearted spiritually and then to cease to seek the Lord uh, in order to be equipped by Him and led by Him to lead those the people that were under Uh, their authority. And I think that it speaks powerfully uh, to each of us as Christians. It certainly speaks powerfully um, to every father uh, who is in the room, uh, to every mother who is in the room, especially uh, the father and, and then the mother, but then also to any place that we have Um, in an influence in the body of Christ, a home fellowship leader, a worship leader, working in the children's ministry, whatever it might be, where we there are people that are following us, they're being influenced by us, and the importance that our hearts not become dull-hearted spiritually and that we seek to uh, uh, fail uh, to seek the Lord. Um, it's an awesome thing uh, to have a wife, to have children, uh, to have people that are depending upon us to be spiritual people and to be seeking the Lord in our decision-making and, and so forth. And they failed to do that and the nation would pay a terrible, terrible price for it. But it is, again, not something that we want to separate from ourselves by thousands of years. It reaches right into our lives. And maybe I'm speaking to a father uh, here tonight where, uh, or whoever it might be to get back, and there's that dull-heartedness that is uh, spiritually that has begun to impact your life, no longer seeking the Lord, and your eyes have moved away from the fact that there's a brood, there's a wife, there's children that are dependent upon these things being active and real uh, within your life and consequences that they're uh, bearing as a result. It's a good word for all of us, not just fathers as well. And so, for the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord, and therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks, and see here is the sadness of it, all their flocks shall be uh, scattered as a result. Behold, the noise of the report has come uh, of the invasion of Babylon, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of jackals. And then Jeremiah, uh, please uh, to the Lord here in the closing section of chapter 10 uh, for the Lord to uh, judge uh, uh, the uh, nations. He says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. Is that a great line or what? (laughs) I know that the way of man is not in himself. That truth was one of the things that brought me Uh, to the Lord. Uh, to look at myself, to look at other people, but mostly at myself and to realize uh, this, is, this cannot be what this is about. And uh, I need help in, in this life. Uh, the way of, uh, of man is not in himself. We are not meant to be the lords of our life. It is not in a man who walks to direct his own steps. How do you get from one place to another? You probably, If you have to walk... To your car in order to go home tonight, you're not worthy to be your own God. Uh, Because there's a God who is everywhere all at the same time. That's the God that we want to worship. And so, Jeremiah here speaking about the limitations of man, the frailty of man that are so obvious to us every day, and yet the temptation to worship man and to worship ourselves. He says, O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. And then he declares, pour out your fury, Uh, On the Gentiles who do not know you, and on the families who do not call on your name, for they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him, and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. And so Jeremiah sees it all very, very clearly. He sees that the Babylonians are going to come in, and they are going to be used as an instrument of judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah. But The uh, Babylonians would do what the Assyrians did and, and others did to the nation of Israel. When God called them to use them as an instrument of judgment against his people, they always went too far. And then they meted out a judgment, a destruction, a violence against God's people that was beyond what God intended them to do, and, and God then would hold them responsible uh, for having done that. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. I know you're, I know you're righteous. I know you're right. I'm not questioning that. But what I see that Babylon is going to do is beyond what you're wanting them to do and I just ask you to judge them when they overstep uh, their mandate from you and seek more than the chastening of the people of Judah but seek their destruction as well. It's It's a good word and it's an important word for all of us. I think that when God uses us in another person's life to correct or as an instrument of his chastening to make sure that we never overstep what it is that he is wanting us to do in that situation and, and then make it personal and go beyond that because God notices that and then he is forced to chasten and judge us as well. So we'll stop there tonight. Um, obviously, I hope <laughs> you would see that and, and we'll pick it up in chapter 11. Next time, let's stand together and we'll pray. Let me just say before we